0: Turn with me once more this evening to our studies in the book of Psalms, and tonight to Psalm 116, Psalm 116, and we'll read it from beginning to end. (coughs) I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him him as long as I live the cords of death encompassed me and the terrors of Sheol came upon me I found distress and sorrow then I called upon the name of the Lord O Lord I beseech you save my life gracious is the Lord and righteous yes our God is compassionate the Lord preserves the simple I was brought low and he saved me Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Oh, Lord, surely I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your handmaid. You have loosed my bonds. To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord, oh may it be in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. So tonight, Lord, in the presence of all your people, help me to honor you, to fulfill the commitment that I've made to open your word on your behalf, and in the presence of all your people, Lord, help Each of us to fulfill our commitments to you, to hear and to believe and to obey your word. And you come and help us understand it. Help us to embrace it, to love it, to believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonah was drowning, you remember, hovering between life and death somewhere out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. The waves were sweeping over his head. The seaweed was becoming tangled around him. And barring a miraculous intervention of the Lord, there would be no escape, no resurfacing above the waves, no vacation in Tarshish, and no preaching in Nineveh. And in those dire straits, as Mark reminded us when he preached on Jonah some time ago, in those dire straits, what was on Jonah's lips? but the words of the Psalter, the words of the Psalms. Indeed, it appears that Jonah may even have been quoting some words of this Psalm, of Psalm 116. Some of you might take the challenge of figuring out which words. But as you think about the predicament of Jonah you can see why a psalm like this one might have come to his mind because the psalmist here finds himself in something of a similar difficulty to the prophet. We're not told exactly what is the cause, but whatever it is, the psalmist finds himself, like the prophet of Nineveh, hovering between life and death. Isn't that what we read in verse 3? The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol Came upon me, I found distress and sorrow. Just like Jonah, who said the earth with its bars was around him forever, so also the psalmist is in this predicament in which he can see very slim possibilities of escape, very little chance of prolonging his life apart from a miraculous intervention of God. He's staring death in the face. In verse 3. And we don't know, again, exactly the cause. We don't know what it was that was so threatening to the psalmist, whether he was drowning like Jonah or suffering from a great illness perhaps or gashed by a deadly wound in battle or hounded like David by a bloodthirsty enemy or something else. All we know is that the cords of death encompassed him. He was ready to die And the only other thing that we know is that we're given a hint in verse 11 that his difficulties were perhaps suffered at the hands of some deceitful enemy, some liar. But whatever the backstory, when we encounter the psalmist here in Psalm 116, we learn that death from a purely human perspective seemed to have been standing on his doorstep. And if you're keeping track tonight, you might file this first portion of the sermon under the heading, The Predicament. The predicament, and again, we see the predicament of the psalmist described powerfully, albeit in not great detail, in verses 3, 10, and 11. The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Verse 10, I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, verse 11, all men are liars. There's the predicament. Now you may well say to yourself, well, this is quite an interesting portrait, quite a fascinating historical vignette to consider, this man on his deathbed, this man teetering on the brink of eternity and calling out to the Lord and being delivered. But praise God, I've never been in such a predicament myself. One or two of us in the room tonight may have had a near brush with death, but probably not many. A few others of us may have wanted to die at some point. We may have been in such anguish of soul, such grief, such depression at some period of life that emotionally we felt like the cords of death were wrapped around our throats and we thought of taking our own lives. And if you're one of those people, this psalm may correspond quite directly to your own experience. I hope it does. I hope it causes you to praise the Lord once again or to flee to Him tonight, like the psalmist, if you're in the throes of despair right now. So there are a few of us this evening for whom the application of this psalm to our own life and death predicaments will be quite obvious. A few of us have wobbled on the verge of death ourselves, either emotionally or physically, and experienced God's marvelous rescue so that the application of Psalm 116 will be easy for us. But what about the rest of us? I was with a friend not long ago, an elderly man, who was giving thanks to the Lord multiple times in our conversation that his life had been so smooth, so easy, so relatively painless in comparison to many other people. And some of us probably could say the same thing, right? Especially when we read a psalm like this one. What am I supposed to do with Psalm 116, which has as its backstory a recovery from a deathbed, if I myself have never been anywhere near a deathbed except as an observer? Well, one thing you ought to do with this psalm, spoken by a man who's recovered from his deathbed, is to file it away in your hip pocket for the time when you may be on a deathbed, either emotional or physical. Because through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, right? And a psalm like this one can be a balm when those tribulations come. But then another use of this psalm is to realize that this rhythm of prayer and answer to prayer and thanksgiving through which this psalm takes us is not a chord pattern only to be strummed after a brush with death. The way the psalmist responds to his trial and the way God responds to the psalmist are a pattern for every trial in the Christian life, even the ones that aren't so severe, including the one that you're facing right now, which may not compare to the cords of death wrapped around the psalmist's neck, but which is a trial nonetheless. Picture it in your mind. It is a trial. It is an opportunity for prayer, just like the psalmist, and it is a trial about which your God does care. We are going to see a pattern in this psalm of trial and prayer and answer and praise that ought to be repeated again and again in the life of every Christian with trials great and small. And so you can apply this psalm tonight to any of those things. And then let me say one more thing as we consider the predicament of the psalmist this evening, and that is that so often in the pages of the Old Testament, we have the physical trials and triumphs of the saints of old recorded for us as a kind of foreshadowing, a kind of preparation for the spiritual trials and triumphs of the Christian life, so that For instance, Noah's physical rescue from the flood is a foreshadowing of the spiritual redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And Israel's physical exodus from slavery is a magnificent portrait of our spiritual exodus from slavery to sin. And I want to suggest to you that we must read the predicament of the psalmist in this way as well. You may not have been physically snatched from the jaws of death. Like he was, but if you understand your sin and if you understand the consequences of your sin, then you can surely say, with the psalmist, verse 3 the cords of death encompassed me and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. That is where we were apart from the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That was your predicament, dead in your trespasses and sins. And if you want to trace the origins of this death, you can trace them, much like the psalmist in verse 11, to a liar, to a deceitful enemy in the ancient garden who brought all of this death about. And so the psalmist's story is your story, only in a far more profound sense than even if we had a near-death experience in this life. We actually were dead in our trespasses and sins, and some of us who are yet without Christ and without God in the world are still dead there dead in trespasses and sins and like Jonah and like the psalmist without any hope of rescue unless the Lord himself should intervene for us and so that's the predicament tonight and it's a predicament in which at least in this one way we all have found ourselves but the predicament of the psalm leads in the second place to the cry of the psalm the cry of In verses 3 and 4, the cords of death encompassed me and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Now that's pretty straightforward, is it not? If you're in a predicament, you must and you may call upon the name of the Lord. And so this is what you must do when you're diagnosed with cancer or when you're badly injured in a car crash and waiting on the ambulance to arrive or when your house on the mission field is surrounded by torches or when you're so depressed that suicide actually seems like a viable option. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I beseech you, save my life. And this is what you do, too, when you've lost your keys or when you're heading into that difficult meeting, or when your family life is on pins and needles at home, or when you're out of work, O oh Lord, I beseech you, save. And this is certainly what you do when you come to your senses and realize your sin and your need of redemption, right? When I realized my sin, then I called upon the name of the Lord, O oh Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Now, I've said what I'm about to say, I don't know how many times through the years in our studies of the Psalms, but I'm going to say it again tonight, namely that, of course, this is what we do when we encounter various trials. Of course, this is what we do in the shadow of death. And of course, prayer is what we do when we realize our sin. Of course, we pray in such times. Or do we? Prayer is perhaps the most obvious thing in the world for Christians to talk about when they consider the trials that come upon us in this life, but it's not always actually the thing we do, is it? Sometimes we find ourselves running to everyone but God. We call the doctor, we call the psychiatrist, we call the pastor, we call our friends, we resort to Google, we begin to make plans, or maybe we just roll into bed and wallow. And we may think to ourselves, That we've prayed. We may imagine that we've called upon God. We may know that this is what Christians do, and I'm preaching all this to myself, but have we actually done it? And have we done it hurriedly, hurriedly, perfunctorily, or with genuine faith and desperation? Don't mishear me. I'm not saying you shouldn't call your doctor or your pastor or you shouldn't seek the counsel of friends or that you shouldn't search the web or make any plans. I'm just saying that your first call, your last call, your most frequent call, and the line that should remain open all throughout the trial and beyond should be the one with heaven. Maybe some of us wallow in difficulty or in guilt far too long or don't have any peace when we're going through the difficulty because we haven't heeded the psalmist example and the example that's set for us all throughout the scriptures i found distress and sorrow then i called upon the name of the lord and what does james say about those who fail to do this obvious thing when it comes to prayer you do not have because you do not ask so often that's true of me I do not have because I do not ask. So what is it that you ought to be praying about tonight or in the days that are ahead? Some sin to confess? Some problem to spread before the Lord? The salvation of your very soul from the terrors of Sheol? Whatever it is, I know it seems obvious that you should pray, and I know you may tell yourself right now that you will pray, but will you actually pray? Will you cry out to him? Will you actually call upon the name of the Lord? I urge you as I urge myself to actually do it. So that's the second thing to notice here in Psalm 116. First, the predicament, a deadly one. Second, the cry. And then in third place, in the third place, we need especially to notice the answer. The answer. A good deal of this psalm is actually given over to describing the answer of God to the psalmist's prayer. And let's just walk it through and follow what the psalmist says about God's answers to his prayers. Notice what he says, first of all, in verses 1 and 2. He hears my voice and my supplications. He has, verse 2, inclined his ear to me. Isn't that a beautiful picture in verse 2? The Lord inclining His ear, stooping low so as to hear us. Sometimes we do that with small children, don't we? Their voices aren't very loud, sometimes not very descript. And so we incline our ear to them. We stoop down, we tilt our head, we turn one ear toward them, we cup our hand behind the ear so as to be sure to catch everything that they're saying. And that's how it is with God. That's how it is with God. He has inclined his ear to me. Now, that doesn't mean God is hard of hearing like we sometimes are. Or that he actually has to stoop down somehow, uh, literally, in order to hear us. This is a picture, remember. But what the picture is telling us is that as a parent stoops down to hear the child's voice so as to not miss anything that she says, so is God with his children. He is eager to hear all that we have to say. Small as we are, faltering as our voices may be, he has inclined his ear to me. And what kind of God is it who stoops down and listens to us? Well, this is the theme the psalmist picks up down in verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. So he hears... And he hears with grace and righteousness and compassion. The God who inclines to hear his children is, first of all, a gracious God. He is in the practice of giving us better than we have deserved. So that when you cry out to him with some predicament, even when it is self-inflicted, his response is not just to shut you down by saying, you know you're getting what was coming to you. That may sometimes be true. And God may sometimes allow and intend for you to suffer a little while, for you to get for a little while what was coming to you. But he doesn't do that callously. He doesn't do so without a purpose of grace in your life. And he won't leave his children there forever. Gracious is the Lord, doing us good, even when our predicaments are our own faults. And even when we don't respond to them like we should. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Righteous. And righteous, which means that when he answers our requests, he will always do so justly. Which is good to know if you feel you're suffering unjustly. If you're in a predicament, verse 11, because of someone else's deceit or malice. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Indeed, so righteous that even in his aforementioned grace, he is not sweeping your sin under the rug. God is gracious to his children because he has placed their sins on the head of his only begotten and dealt justly with them in him. God never bends the rules, even when he's showing his grace. And that's the kind of God you want to depend on in prayer. Gracious is the Lord and righteous, yes, our God is compassionate. Compassionate. Now, this is similar to and correlative with God's grace, isn't it? This is the God who doesn't ignore your sins because you're small, but stoops down, as it were, to hear them. This is the God who doesn't bat your requests away, even when they arise out of the consequences of your own sin. Our God is compassionate, the psalmist says. And then listen to what the psalmist says next. Still thinking about the Lord's answer to his prayer. Verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. The Lord preserves the simple. Who are the simple? Well, we might just read a sentence like that uh, out of its context and think that what the psalmist means is that God preserves people who are too simple to preserve themselves too limited in their mental capacity to figure out their own solutions, or in their physical capacity to make their own solutions. Children, the elderly, the mentally perplexed, and so on. God helps those who cannot help themselves, if you will. And that's certainly true of God. But I'm not sure that that's what's being taught in this verse. Because in Psalm 116, the psalmist is speaking about the simple, but he's talking about himself He's calling himself the simple because notice the personal pronouns in the second half of the verse. The Lord preserves the simple, I was brought low, and he saved me. And so the psalmist considers himself among the simple. And yet the beauty of his poetry probably rules out the possibility that he was simple in the ways that I was just mentioning. And So what does he mean when he refers to himself as among the simple? Well, perhaps his simplicity lies in the fact that when he finds himself in a predicament, he simply prays. He simply calls upon the name of the Lord. He doesn't mention any other strategy here for extricating himself from the cords of death. He just prays. And in that regard, he's a simple man, a man of simple trust in the Lord. And the Lord preserves the simple Some of us may not like it very well if people called us simple. We might take it as an insult to our intelligence or our problem-solving ability or our capacity for taking care of ourselves to be called simple. But maybe it's just that sort of sneaky pride that doesn't fancy ourselves among the simple that makes it so easy under the previous heading to forget to simply pray. Maybe that's why some of us remain unsaved. We want to do something. We want to have some say in the matter. We want to prove ourselves. We want to contribute something to our salvation. But the Lord preserves the simple. The Lord saves not the spiritually ingenious or worthy, but the artless folks who simply trust that Christ has done it all for them. Christ saves. The Lord preserves the simple. And I wonder how simple we are. And we see in the rest of this verse that God did so for the psalmist, don't we? I was brought low and he saved me. So here's here's the core of what we're talking about. We're talking about the answer of God to the psalmist's prayer. And here it is. I was brought low and he saved me. Now, just as he tells us, doesn't tell us how he got into this deathly predicament. He doesn't tell us exactly how God got him out. He just tells us that God got him out and that it was God who did it. And then expounding on that deliverance and speaking in a soliloquy to himself in verse 7, he puts it like this, the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. So I was brought low, verse 6, and he saved me. And then he talks to himself and says, the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Now, some of you, if anyone's been brought back from the precipice of death or if you've been pulled away from the ledge of suicide or deep depression, you can talk to yourself like that, can't you? The Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You didn't think you could ever laugh again. You didn't think you would ever sing songs of praise again. You didn't believe you'd ever be able to enjoy your family again. And yet some of you have done all three of those things even this very day. And many other days of your life as well. The Lord has dealt bountifully with you. And indeed, if you're one of those folks at the beginning about whom I said that this psalm would make easy application, if you have stood on the cliff edge of evil, either physical or emotional dissolution, you should just pause right now and think of all that this sentence in verse 7 should mean to you in the aftermath of your struggles. The Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Has he not? And all of us, all of us who have been resurrected from the pits of spiritual death can say it as well. Has not the Lord dealt bountifully with you in Christ in the way that he has resurrected you from the spiritual grave? The word bountiful is one for me anyway that conjures up thoughts of thanksgiving cornucopias with all manner of delights spilling out onto the table and that's what we have in Christ he is a cornucopia and out of him says Paul spills every spiritual blessing bountifully with you every spiritual blessing new birth by his spirit Holy Spirit, and the subsequent ability and desire to lay hold of Christ by faith, and to repent of sins, and to embrace the things of God that were once just a series of drab doctrines to you. And by this faith, and in this Christ, declared righteous in God's sight, and forgiven of your sins, and adopted into God's family, and granted a passport to heaven. And in Christ, All along the pathway to the final destination, God working to rid you practically of your sins, perfecting his work in you until the day of Christ Jesus. All this and more belong to you if you belong to Christ. And so if you've realized your predicament in sin and you've cried to the Lord for mercy in His Son, then you can surely say to yourself in the words of the psalmist, the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. And regarding your own spiritual journey, if you're in Christ, you can say with the psalmist verses 8 and 9, you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. If the Lord has dealt bountifully with you in Christ, well then, no matter what the outcome of your earthly predicaments, there is future life for you. That's what the psalmist says. I am in the land of the living now, God has already helped me. He's already saved me. But verse 9, I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. No matter what your earthly predicaments, if you belong to Christ, you shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. You shall walk before the Lord in the glory of heaven and someday in the bliss of the new earth. Surely this is one reason why we can agree with the psalmist when he says in verse 15, precious In the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Why is that so? How can death be precious? Well, one reason, probably the most obvious reason, is because the death of the godly is not an end, but a beginning. The death of the godly is not God's failure to answer our cries for deliverance, but it is rather the final and fullest answer to those cries. God doesn't always provide an earthly rescue from every sorrow that we face, does he? Unlike Jonah, some of God's saints have drowned at sea, like the two Margarets about whom I've told you before who were drowned for their faith in 17th century Scotland, or like John Harper, some of you may have heard his name. He was the preacher aboard that fateful voyage of the Titanic who famously preached Christ to the perishing souls around him as they all treaded water in the open Atlantic until he himself went under to rise no more in this world. God did not deliver him in the same way he delivered the psalmist, and God does not always take away the cancer. He does not always avert the head-on collision at the last moment. Sometimes he may not lift the depression completely even to the end of your days. But he gives grace to hold on and to press on in the midst of those trials. And if you belong to Christ, no matter what the trials may be, you shall someday soon, perhaps sooner than you think, walk before the Lord in the land of the living. So that's the answer to the psalmist's prayer. It's a marvelous answer. God stooped down and heard. He inclined his ear. He heard the cry of his simple servant, the cry of simple faith, and he answered, he saved him, he dealt bountifully with this psalmist, in this case by saving his physical life. And in every case, for those who belong to Christ, he ensures that they will one day walk in the land of the living and that their death will be precious in his sight. So then the predicament, the cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. The cry, O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. The answer, the Lord has dealt bountifully, and I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And then finally tonight, we need to consider the response. The response of the psalmist to all the Lord's bounty. What shall I render to the Lord, verse 12, for all his benefits toward me? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? And he lists five things throughout the psalm, five things that he will render to the Lord in response to God's goodness. And we'll look at each of them briefly, briefly not necessarily in the order in which they appear in the psalm. Number one, what shall he render to the Lord? For all the Lord's benefits toward him, number one, love. I love the Lord, verse 1, because he hears my voice and my supplications. I love the Lord because he does all the things that we've been talking about tonight. My God is the kind of God, in other words, who hears prayer, who bends down and cups his ears to the prayers of his children, and I love him for it, says the psalmist. I love him for it. And what is love? Well, Surely the psalmist means here that he has an affection for God. There is a warmth in his heart toward him. His eyes brighten before the Lord like a little girl when her daddy blows her a kiss. I love the Lord. And love, Jesus also tells us, connotes obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we need to love God. We need to love the God who hears our prayers, the God who answers our prayers, the God who's preparing a home for us where we may walk before him in the land of the living, the God who sent his son to rescue us from the cords of death and from the lies of the devil. We need to love our God in both these ways, with a warmth of affection, a desire to be in his presence and to hear his voice, and with an obedience that shows where our affections truly lie. Do you love God? Can you say with the psalmist, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications? That's the first response to God's goodness in this psalm. But then even further, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Number two, rest. Rest, verse 7, return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. The psalmist has been through a great trial, a great time of unrest. And now that God has delivered him, now that God has answered his prayer, he mustn't continue fidgeting his way along. He mustn't continue to be afraid. He mustn't continue to live in that unrest And neither must you and I. God's answers to prayer or even the knowledge that God will answer our prayer should not leave us in the same nervous state as we were before we prayed. We should return to our rest. That doesn't mean we get up from our knees and we aren't still scared or uneasy. But there should now be something of a rock beneath our feet and especially so once God has answered. God answers and his faithfulness to answer allows us to preach to ourselves like the psalmist, return to your rest, o my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. And that's certainly true once we've been rescued from our sin. We don't have to live any longer in the agitation of condemnation if we are in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean we shouldn't feel bad about our sins, sometimes even for prolonged periods, even after we've confessed them. Sometimes we're supposed to feel bad and ashamed for a little while, even after we've confessed. But there's a difference between that and feeling condemned, fidgeting in a sense of fear. We needn't do that because there's rest when God has answered our prayers. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Number three, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Thanksgiving. Verse 17, to you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. What are you supposed to do when the cornucopia is spilled out? When the feast is spread out on the table? Not just dive in with forks and knives and great passion, which we should do, but also give thanks to the one doing the giving, right? Don't just love the gifts, love the giver. Years ago I was at a birthday party for some children, for a child. It wasn't any of your children, so you can rest easy. But I was at a birthday party for a young lad and I was appalled to watch him tear into his gifts and paper being thrown hither and yon and the gifts beginning to pile up on the table but with no sense that the boy was grateful for them and no real sign of gratitude from his lips toward the givers. And we can be that way with God if we're not careful, can't we? We pray for something maybe the finding of our lost keys, and then we thrash around the house looking for them. And when they finally turn up, we just go, and we get up and we go on our way to the car without even remembering that we just asked God, the God of the universe, for the very thing that we've now been granted. I'm like that so often. I'm like the nine lepers who didn't return to give Jesus thanks. But not so the psalmist. And not so the Christian when he really appreciates God's bounty toward him. To you, I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. So then, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Love, rest, thanksgiving. Number four, faithfulness. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Verse 14, I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. And then again in verse 18, I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. Sometimes when we're in a predicament and we call upon the Lord for help, we make certain vows to him, don't we? If you will get me out of this, Lord, then I promise to do such and such for you. I'm not sure those are always wise vows. I'm not sure that they're always what God really requires of us. But if you make them, and if God answers your plea, then you must turn around and say with the psalmist, I shall pay my vows to the Lord. But even more importantly, and maybe more to the point, there are other vows that we've made to the Lord long before we ever got in trouble, are there not? Not the ones blurted out when we're in a pickle, but rather the kind that we, we made at the very beginning of our Christian life to follow Christ and to forsake sin. The vows that some of us have made to love our wives or to respect our husbands, the vows to raise our children for Christ or to serve the church or to give to the Lord's cause and so on. If you're a member of this church at least if you've become a member since I've been here, you made a series of vows before the Lord and to your fellow members to live and love in certain ways in our membership covenant. And those vows are nothing more than vows to live according to the basic teachings of the Bible. And what the psalmist is teaching us is that every answer to prayer, every blessing that tumbles out of the cornucopia is a reminder and an inducement for you to keep those vows, to do what you told God you would do and told others you would do in his name. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall pay my vows to the Lord. And then finally, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Number five, I will pray again the next time. I'll pray again the next time. Isn't that what we read in verses 12 through 13? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? The most immediate answer that he gives is, I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, John Piper has been so helpful to me in understanding what that means, what's going on here in verses 12 and 13. Because the question the psalmist asks, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? In verse 12, that question may make us think that he's now going to talk about some repayment plan, some way of paying God back for all that he's done. But what Piper points out is that the lifting up of the cup in verse 13 and the calling on God's name are not a repayment, but rather an asking for even more blessings. In other words, it's not a full cup that I'm giving to God. It's an empty cup saying, fill it up again. So how do I respond to the overflow of God's kindness? How do I respond to the fact that my cup overflows? I'll lift up the cup again. Again. And call on the name of the Lord to fill it again. And we find the same thing in verse 2. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. Sometimes we might be tempted to tell ourselves, look, self, God has been really good to you this time. In fact, he's been really good to you for quite some while. And so you'd better not overstay your welcome at his throne of grace. He's done you several solids already, and now it's time for you to just back off all the prayer requests for a while, lay low, and don't press your luck. That's how we think about things when we're dealing with other people, right? There's only so many times you can go to someone else as well. There's only so many times you can borrow your neighbor's sugar before you start to wonder if you're becoming a nuisance, And when we're dealing with other people, that's probably a good rule of thumb, incidentally. But God's supply of sugar and the depth of resources in his well are limitless. And he, unlike us, actually delights in being asked for help over and over and over again. Because he delights to help us and because he delights to see us recognize that we need his help. And so while your instinct, after God has filled your cup up once, twice, three times, while your instinct might be to hold off for a while before asking him to fill it again, while your instinct might be to be wary of being, of that, being that guy who's always begging something from God, the example of the psalmist is the opposite. His example is not to say, because he has inclined his ear to me, I will now taper back my requests for a little season so as not to be too much of a leech. Rather, his example is to say, because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call upon him as long as I live. I just keep calling upon him. He's been so good to me. Why not go back to the well again? The example of the psalmist, when the Lord has filled his cup, is to lift it up in verse 13 and ask him to fill it again. And I commend to you this line of thinking. God delights to hear your prayers. He delights to forgive your sins in Christ. He delights when you depend on him for everything. And so... What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? What shall I give God for all the cups that he has filled for me? Another empty cup. Another cry for help. Another admission of my neediness. And this is surely applicable in the realm of the salvation of our souls. We don't outgrow our need for the cross. We don't stop repairing under its shade and experiencing forgiveness there afresh just because we've done so many times before. We can never wear out our welcome coming again and again to Calvary because the store of mercy that is there is both free for the taking and more limitless than the greatest sea. As Charles Wesley put it, O Jesus, full of truth and grace, more full of grace than I have sinned more full of grace than I have sinned and so my response to being forgiven once twice 70 times seven and far more times than that is the next time I sin again which won't be long from now to go to the well again to lift up my cup again and ask Jesus to fill it with his mercy again and I hope that's your response and your experience of the gospel as well What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord.